0: So as we step into a time of prayer, we have provided a table over here to the side. And so as we step into prayer, also as we step into worship, we're going to invite you to participate in worship. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. Um, If you would like to come up and light a candle, you will see that there are some specific prayer requests that have been laid out on a sheet there as well. Um, They can direct you as you pray or just pray as the Spirit directs you it's hard to process something that is both at a great distance and also is of such a great magnitude. And what we do is we trust the spirit to move our hearts. Sometimes it is difficult to make ourselves understand um, and we want to somehow bridge the gap and, and we know that we can't. And so as we wait on the spirit, we know that the Spirit is present in every single breath, in every single moment that is taking place all around the world. And so we don't have to take responsibility for all of the magnitude that we cannot even begin to wrap our heads around. What we can do is be present with the Spirit and grieve and pray. And in that presence, we know that our hearts are linked to the hearts of all those who the Spirit is with and there is no one that the Spirit does not see. There is no one that the Spirit is not with. Let's begin into worship with just a moment of quiet. Spirit of God who hovered over the water, even at the chaos at the beginning of all things, would you draw our hearts as we worship this morning into a place of gratitude, of remembering again your goodness, of grieving. Of being present. We lift up the people who have been impacted by this earthquake, especially those who are still waiting for rescue. Would you move our hearts this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: If you would stay standing for a reading of Mark ten two through 16. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, "'Because of your hardness of heart,' he wrote this as a commandment. "'But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, "'and therefore a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, "'and the two should become one flesh, so they would no longer two but one flesh. "'And therefore what God has joined together let no man separate. "'And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter.' And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him so that he may touch them. And the disciples rebuked him. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child... Shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them.
2: Uh, it's almost Valentine's Day, and so what a other appropriate passage to do this morning than a teaching on divorce? That is not how we planned it on the calendar. It was not intentional in any way whatsoever. It just happened uh, as we went through the book that this is where we find ourselves. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of a background before we jump into this. On March 4th of 2012, that's a while ago, I taught on the subject of divorce. Uh, We're going through a series on the book of Matthew, and uh, I attempted to solve the 2,000 year plus debate as it relates to divorce, and frankly, I crushed it. Uh, I think I answered everybody's questions and like everybody left going, oh, that's what I thought. Okay, great. Uh, But in all truthfulness, in all truthfulness, um, if I'm honest, I have to say that I'm not sure how I really feel about that talk. Uh, There are parts that I would absolutely not repeat. I wouldn't say them again. There are parts to it that I didn't really like the tone. Um, even like as I'm just reading it again, I'm like, man, that's just a little too much trying to solve problems uh, for how I feel about it today. Uh, I also think there was a little bit too much, again, if I'm honest, a little too much of this is exactly what the Bible says, and if you hold and believe this thing, then you've got it figured out. And uh, that is not the approach that I prefer to take. So today... After a decade, I get to take another crack at it, this time out of the book of Mark. Um, So I say that to say that's where we're going this morning, and I want to start with a little bit of a warning, okay? Here's my warning. I'm going to do my best. It's an attempt to try to talk about the intent of the passage or what it might be communicating or what it might have for us today in 2023. With that being said... I can almost promise that some may be disappointed that I didn't say quite enough. Some may be disappointed that I did not answer every possible scenario of every possible relationship of everyone in the entire world all at the same time in a way that seems somewhat black and white and very clear to know how it works for each and every situation. And some may even long for the certain level of certainty that I said 10 years ago, you might have heard and gone, oh, that seems certain, and you might hear less certainty today. So I suspect that there will be stuff lacking, okay? There was 10 years ago, there will be today. Um, so I just feel like we could get that out in the open right away. Uh, I think it's also especially true given that this topic is heavy, topic's complex, We could probably, we won't, but do a show of hands, and we would, without a doubt, likely hit 100% of everyone has been affected by divorce at some level. Friends, family, co-workers, immediate relationship, Um, it is a a tough, tough topic. Uh, And just for fun, I'm going to attempt to do it all in one talk. So... This morning, that is uh, my warning. Now, before we take the diamond of the text and kind of like examine it and consider it and look at it from different angles, uh, I feel like it's also appropriate to say that I come to the text with certain presuppositions or preconditions or things that I already believe about marriage and divorce before I get to the text. So I figured I'd get those out of the way too. Okay? First one is this. This is what I hold to be true, that marriage is sacred. It is a sacred, sacred thing. It involves the taking of sacred vows, making certain commitments, and it represents an incredibly unique, complex, emotional, physical, and spiritual relationship. In fact, uh, when I have the honor and privilege of standing before a couple and inviting them to take their vows, I always give them a charge right before the vows and this is the charge I'll read it from my notes I say this every time I charge you both here in the presence of the father the son and the holy spirit that the covenant you are about to make is of the most sacred nature and it is nothing short of a divine call so I am coming into this with the perspective that marriage is sacred I think marriage is also unique in that it's ordained by God to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. So when Christ is describing what it's like to love his people, to love the church of God, he chooses marriage to illustrate it. He doesn't choose like a brother-sister relationship or a brother-brother relationship. He doesn't choose friend-to-friend or parent to child, those would all have been good illustrations. He somehow, for some reason, chose that it would be this marriage relationship that would be the message to the world of what it looks like for him to love his people. Okay? Third is that devastation is a part of divorce. Divorce is filled with it. And it could stem from years of anguish and bitter words and deep frustration. Or it could be stemming from a moment of gut-wrenching betrayal. More often than not, there are feelings and a sense of guilt and shame, perhaps loneliness and abandonment. At times, there are court proceedings, financial settlements, custody battles, and always the inescapable impact of children involved, whether they are young or grown. Sprinkle in a sense of rejection, and what you have in divorce is one of the most tragic of human experiences, and it affects so, so many of us. So my plan for this morning is to walk through what I consider a few important significant aspects to understanding the passage or what I think Jesus is getting at and what he's communicating. Uh, The second thing that I'm going to try to do is offer a few additional concepts for consideration, something for us just to think on, uh, to stew about, to go back to small group um, and study a little bit more, discuss. So that's my goal for this morning. We'll start Uh, You've already seen the passage read, but I'll jump in and just read this first phrase again. The Pharisees, out of Mark 10, the Pharisees came up in order to test him, him being Jesus, and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So, significant aspect to understanding this passage, number one, is that today's gospel isn't even really about divorce. From the very beginning, Mark says this is a test. Test being the exact same word that is used of Jesus when he is tempted or tested in the wilderness by the tempter. Same, same word. So this is not really a pastoral question about divorce. Okay, the Pharisees aren't coming to Jesus with this great intent to solve a pastoral question. See, marriage in first century Palestine was an arrangement between families and not a choice between individuals. So it was important to understand that it was more of an exchange of property, the women, than it was about romance. That was not how it was viewed. So when the Pharisees are asking the questions they're not really concerned about potentially a woman in an abusive situation. They're not concerned about a young couple that's gotten married that is kind of hitting the rocky road and it just isn't feeling like it's working out. They're not probably asking about someone who betrayed another in marriage and the feelings that are involved in that. They're likely not asking or caring about a uh, marriage that somehow is spiritually dead or is just kind of migrated into a space where people are only roommates and it feels completely dead. And they're not probably deeply concerned about the spiritual and emotional well-being of a certain couple or couples in their care. They are there with an ulterior motive and that motive is simply to test Jesus, to put him in a really bad spot to get his take on the state of the law. Give me what it means, and we're going to try to trap you, to test you. So this is what he says. He answers them. What did Moses command you? I love how Jesus always answers their questions with questions. So what did, Jesus, or what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So here's significant aspect number two we are being dropped into a first century cultural and religious debate concerning divorce. This would have been the hot topic in rabbinic schools. This would have been the conversation around the water cooler if they had water coolers back then, right? This would have been the conversation because what people wanted to know are what are the laws or the rules, who is in the right, And is God on my side of the debate? Okay? That's what they wanted to know. It's unfortunate that we can't relate to that in our culture at all. But they wanted that certainty. They wanted a clarity. And they wanted to know is God on our side. And so Jesus is being thrown into the middle of this debate. And the debate centered on this idea, is it okay for me to dismiss my wife, to literally loose or unbind the relationship and send away my spouse for whatever reason. What they are doing is appealing back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So it'll be on the screen, Deuteronomy 24, the first little part of it in verse 1 says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, prior to that statement, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the situation for women in the ancient Near East wasn't pretty. Right? Three to four thousand years ago, women were horribly mistreated as a societal norm. Men could divorce women, but women could not divorce men because women were possessions. Okay? I hate to say it, but women and wives were viewed and treated as property. You can even notice this in the Ten Commandments with the last one being, do not covet your neighbor's wife, but it's not about adultery because that was earlier, or his horse or his oxen or his whatever because it's just property. So don't covet the property, don't take it, right? So the husband could get rid of the wife for any reason. And there was no honor or respect for the woman who was being sent away. So women were entirely dependent in this culture, at this moment, in this situation, on men to survive. And if the woman was divorced, she would enter into instant poverty. She would have no home, no possessions, nothing, no employment, no work. She was completely, completely in poverty. So there was no protection for her, no dignity, no rights. No way for her to provide for herself unless maybe a family member took her in as a servant and she could like work her way into survival. Um, And most ended up, at least culturally we hear, in prostitution as a way of making ends meet in order to provide for their family. So the book of Deuteronomy comes with Deuteronomy 24, which feels like really, really outdated. And it comes, and that is addressing a cultural issue. And what Moses is saying is he's actually acknowledging the reality of divorce. He's not saying that it's a good thing. He's just simply saying that it exists. And that because it exists, that men have to give women a certificate of divorce. Or to go through a process to make it a legal thing. Now... Again, that seems ancient because it is, but this would have been a gigantic step forward for women. This would have been monumental. It meant that there was almost like this radical empowering of women because they now had some rights. They now had some dignity. They had an official means of like knowing that they had been cast aside. Okay. Again, it's horrible. If you fast forward to the first century, now you understand the debate Jesus is in. Because they're talking about Deuteronomy 24, and they're saying, Okay, Jesus, this is where it's at. Now we want to know where you stand on this. Now part of why they wanted to know is because there was a debate going on between two rabbinic schools. There was Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hael. And these two each had a very clear or distinct difference as it relates to divorce. So, for the one, Shemai, he embraced a narrow or conservative view. The other rabbinic school embraced a broad or liberal view, and it was really over two words. They were parsing out two words. The words are some indecency. So, when you read 24 verse 1, you'll notice that it says some indecency, which is a phrase that literally translates as a nakedness of a thing, Okay? So Shammai would say that here's what that really means. He would stress that the indecency or the nakedness was an ultimate indecency of marital infidelity. It was something that was dramatic and awful. And so only under extreme circumstances such as that is a man permitted to divorce his wife. So he would narrow the explanation and say it's very clear that it is one thing and one thing only. No other things can be a part of it. Now the opposite rabbinic school stressed the word thing. Okay? So indecency of a thing or nakedness of a thing. Nakedness the one, the other was like, no, I think the thing is the thing. So they believed that divorce was permissible under any circumstance. Okay, any circumstance could be labeled as an indecency. So if bad housekeeping, if that was considered to that person an indecency, then it was worthy of divorce. Or if the wife no longer seemed beautiful to the husband, or if he found someone else to be more attractive, or if uh, the person got on his nerves, or whatever reason, that would be the indecency of a thing, and then therefore would be means or grounds for divorce but remember in both cases both cases both rabbinic schools the man Jewish law only allowed the man to give the certificate of divorce okay it's important to remember that now everyone at this point Jesus is confronted by a group of Pharisees where do you stand are you in one rabbinic school or the other rabbinic school so everyone is waiting they're trying to figure out, what's he going to say? Is he going to go with the narrow interpretation, the conservative, or is he going to go with the more liberal or loose interpretation? Is he, and so there's this debate back and forth, what's going to happen. Now, a little side note, just something to consider. Um, <clears throat> as far as it can be determined, scholars have researched this for a while, whenever Jesus is confronted between choosing between these two rabbinic schools, The more conservative rabbinic school or the more liberal rabbinic school. He always sides. Drum roll. Always sides with the more progressive rabbinic school. The one with the more open posture. Every single time he always chooses more progressive except for one time. Any guesses? You're right. This one. Only on the topic of divorce does he choose, or you could say he chooses the more conservative. I would venture to say he actually presents a third way. So again, they go, it's either this or this, and he's like, "Mm, or this, right? That's what Jesus often does is he finds that third way. And so let's consider his answer. Here's what the text tells us. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment, significant aspect number three. And Jesus is suggesting that the issue in today's gospel, again, is not divorce, it's actually hard-heartedness. So what the Pharisees want to do is they want to talk about procedure, they want to talk about technicalities. Is it this or is it that, or what about in this situation or that situation? And what he is trying to do is take the conversation inward. You're trying to have it be all about these things. I'm going to just try to go inward and deeper with it and say, there's something else at play here. And so he says that the reason for their divorce is hard-heartedness and not a bunch of technicalities. And because of this hard-heartedness, the text says that Moses permitted the certificate of divorce. Now, again, I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating that this would have been a huge step forward for women socially. They had the certificate of divorce, which probably meant that it avoided multiple wives. What I mean by that is, if you just dismiss someone, and then move to the next one, and then dismiss them, and move to the next one, if you never gave a certificate of divorce, they're still, in the eyes of the law, legally married, even if he isn't, right? Second, it protected the wife's reputation, because she would actually have a document that says... I was divorced and that she didn't just desert or some other thing uh, happened. And it also minimized the possibility of a hasty divorce. You couldn't wake up one morning, the eggs and the toast didn't taste as well as I wanted, you're out, and then no, you've got to go through a legal process to make this happen. So what Jesus is saying here is really fascinating because he's talking about the hard-heartedness and then he goes on and finishes his statement with this phrase but from the beginning it was not so so jesus is saying that deuteronomy offers you a permission but that was never the original intention so deuteronomy offers a like permission for this but there's a deeper and more interesting intention so jesus is doing i think something really fascinating here what jesus is doing is he's taking deuteronomy and subordinating it to the book of Genesis. So he's saying that, and we've talked about this here before a lot of times, that not all passages in the Bible are equal. There are peaks and valleys, some things that have more significance or weight to them than other things. And so Jesus is saying these are both great ideas, but the one is subordinate to the other idea. Okay? We can talk more about the kind of the weight of Scripture at another time. And he goes on and he says this But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. All right, significant aspect number four marriage results in oneness, or as the text would say, one flesh. Now, I think Jesus brings this up not because he is unaware of the fact that divorce happens, right? You understand divorce happens. I know it happens. Pharisees knew it. Jesus knew it. It was not confusing, right? So while Moses permitted it, what Jesus is communicating is that in some way it's a divine accommodation. It wasn't this original intention, but a divine accommodation, What God's intention was that he's drawing people back to is this idea of one flesh. Brunner describes it this way, and it should be on the screen. If the words one flesh are more than a parable, if they mean that two people are now a mysterious third, if they mean that two whole and independent individuals are now also one whole interdependent community, if they mean two people are now so interwoven with each other that to all intents and purposes they are as much a part of one another as their own organs are a part of them, then there are exciting ramifications. He's speaking to this idea of two lives being intermeshed into one, one flesh. So you could describe that concept this way, that oneness is not the goal of marriage, it is the result of marriage. It is not just the desired outcome, it is actually the new reality. That what God has joined together, and this is what Jesus then says, is don't tear it apart. And this is what makes divorce so difficult, right? Is because when it happens, there is the tearing apart of one flesh. There is the tearing apart, and anytime you divide one, you get fractions. You get heartache, you get hurt, you get shadows, you get difficulty. And this is why Jesus points all of them back to the ideal. I think it's also why we at Newcom speak often of the high calling of covenant, the importance of fidelity, the belief in one flesh. Now it would be easy to stop here and just kind of end on that section where Jesus gives information, but I don't think that gets us to fully understand what's going on in the passage. So what I want to do is kind of transition from those significant aspects to help us to understand the passage and to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us what the Spirit wants us to know about that. And what I want to do is shift to a couple concepts for consideration. Something that I believe that ...that God might have for us in these next two little sections of Scripture. The first one is uh, found here. It says in "...and in the house..." So this is immediately following that conversation. We don't know how much time has elapsed, but he pulls the disciples into the house. "...and the disciples ask him again about this matter, about divorce. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another..." She commits adultery. Now, it is possible, very possible, that what Jesus is doing with the disciples in this moment is seeking to teach them very definitive rules and regulations related to divorce. That could be what he's doing. And that is what I would say is the conventional idea that what Jesus is doing is telling a set of rules to people back then that apply to us today in 2023. And they're for our clarity, for their clarity, and everyone in between. But I also wonder if there could be something else at play. And so I offer this for your consideration. When Jesus explains his stance on divorce to the disciples, okay? They're by themselves in this little room. You can imagine the conversation going on. He uses two of what would be considered nonsensical statements. Two statements that would have made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Okay? Here's the statements. First one. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Now, again, let me remind you of the adultery laws of the time. The adultery laws didn't allow for women to have adultery committed against them. Okay? Now you're going, wait, hold on. Yes, women had no rights in marriage. Okay? So the specific sin of adultery was a man having sex with another man's wife. Okay? For men at the time, it seemed that no other sin fell under the label or definition of adultery. So let me say it another way. If a woman could commit adultery against her husband if she had sex with another man. And a man could commit adultery against a man if that man had sex with that other man's wife. But if a man had sex with a prostitute, male or female, he was not committing adultery against his wife. I know it seems like a double standard, Okay. But that was, that was what was going on. Now, all that to say, it was still a wildly serious sin. What the man was doing against the woman was awful. But it would not have been considered adultery. And he would not be labeled as an adulterer. So Jesus is making this crazy nonsensical statement by saying that if a man does this, And marries another, he is an adulterer. Okay? So Jesus is either talking nonsense or what he's doing is he's stating that there's a higher law at play. That women have rights that are not currently being afforded to them. He seems to be in this statement holding men responsible for their actions and at the same time empowering women in an entirely new way. Then Jesus goes on to a second nonsensical statement. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So this is, again, madness. Women had no rights. They could not divorce their husband. So Jesus, again, sounds like he's saying nonsense because he says, so then when a wife divorces her husband and they're all going, what are you talking about? That doesn't happen. That can't happen. Because the law didn't allow for equality for women. So the assumption that the wife might divorce her husband canceled the assumption that divorce is simply a male prerogative. He's doing something pretty crazy there. Right? He's making marriage something that has serious responsibilities for both males and females, for any partner And Jesus is opening the door for women to be involved in the process. So it's incredible if you think about it that 2,000 years ago or more, that Jesus in this wildly patriarchal society where everything is weighted toward men and not at all toward women steps into this situation and presents an incredibly progressive reality a reality of complete equality between men and women in marriage. And so if you think that Moses' Deuteronomy 24 was this like big leap forward, it was. But this is like a, just a chasm that was leaped by Jesus to say, hey, that is not the way it will be anymore. It's this radical, empowering, pro-woman declaration. And it also, I think, reveals this interesting forward and redemptive movement to the scriptures, where we continue to see it moving into greater freedom and greater equality. Now, as you consider that some more on your own, um, I think you should ask this question, do we think in those two verses that Jesus is describing a set of rules that bind rather than loose, or is this a progressive movement for women living in an oppressive situation. I'm just offering it for consideration. I think it's worth a conversation as to what's going on. The next thing to consider a little bit more is the passage that immediately follows it, which is about the children. Um, <clears throat> here's what's interesting about this passage. We're familiar with it. Jerusha spoke on it last week. And it's, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Don't hinder them. Let them come. Let this be a, a great relationship. Now, what I have never heard is the divorce passage tied to this passage and taught together. I never hear them taught together in part because I think we think, one, these are different subjects, two, because we've let people kind of divide up the Bible into headings and paragraphs and sort out verses, and then that conditions the way we read it. If you're reading it as a in the first original manuscript you'd just be reading one long text and so that passage would be directly following the passage we just looked at Now I think this is really interesting because in both Matthew 19, which is what I taught 10 years ago and in Mark 10, which is what we're teaching right now, both of those passages describe the exact same conversation about divorce and interestingly enough both gospel writers, have this exact story about children immediately following. So the question has to be asked, why? What's the reason? Is there a reason? Because there's no break in the paragraph, so what is going on with this? And, again, this is just an assumption, a speculation. This is for your consideration. So there are a lot of opinions about this child passage where it's about the innocence of the child. Just about how amazing the child comes with wonder and innocence. Uh, the children are cute and caring. And uh, we describe it in those kind of ways um, because they're trusting. And I think all of that is true. That maybe that's what God is getting at. But I also wonder if you spent five minutes with kids on a playground in elementary school, how quick your illusions of kids being just these cute, innocent, little, adorable kids that you would welcome. It goes out the window really fast, right? You're like, what? You little demon. How could you do that to someone else, right? Like you feel that pretty quick. So maybe that's missing the point. Maybe there's something else going on in that moment. So it made me wonder, perhaps, that Jesus is welcoming children precisely because they do not have any virtues that commend them again, you have to remember, in the context, children were even lower than women. So there was no purpose to a child, especially until they got to an age where they could actually provide some of the income back for the family. Until that moment, they're just like a dead weight. They're just taking up space. They're hurting the family because we're having to feed and provide for and care for, and we're getting nothing in return, right? So, Maybe it's about the fact that they have no virtue to commend them and yet Jesus welcomes them. Maybe it's all about grace. And maybe what Jesus is setting up in this passage is a bit of a contrast. So here's my speculation. That their contrast is Jesus just outlined the ideal about marriage. He's calling us to strive for more. He's calling us to shoot for the ideal. He's setting a really high bar. And then he follows it up with the children, reminding us that it's all about grace. So the question is this if you look on the screen, is the gospel free and gracious, as Jesus seems to teach the disciples, or costly and a high calling, as Jesus seems to teach the Pharisees? And I think the answer is likely yes. Yes. That we are wildly aware that we have faith not because we deserved it or figured it out our own, but simply because God invited us to know God's love and acceptance. That we are given faith and that itself is a gift. It is this wild, wild grace. And at the same time, we also know the invitation we all have, which Jesus says, come follow me. Which is a call to leave behind certain things, to deny certain things, to choose things that feel like they're not always in our best interest. And this is where we've you've probably heard this cliche before. God loves us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us where we are. That is the part of becoming. That is the part of transformation. That's the part of growth. Now it could just be a cute story about innocent kids, but here's where I feel like I'm sitting or trying to rest. There's this space where we've been invited to strive for the most ideal, the posture of greatest love, a life that best reflects the virtues of the kingdom, and a life of wholeness, and at the exact same time, to know that life is complex and filled with less than ideal. And in that space, we receive grace. I think we're called to remember that God has joined us to himself, and no one can separate what God has joined together. Nothing can separate us from the love, the life, and the presence of God. So may divine grace fill all our relationships. Let's pray. God, this is uh, complex teaching. This is a heavy passage, and it deeply affects all of us. In these next few moments, God, may we listen to your Spirit, and may you continue to speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: So we're going to take a moment now to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us. We don't do this... In a really practical context, very often, but as we were talking and praying about this Sunday, uh, this was on all of our hearts, so we thought, oh, we better listen to that. When it comes down to it, I'm gonna guess that there are very few people in this room that haven't been impacted by divorce in some capacity. For some of us, that's very immediate. Maybe even be very imminent. For some of us, maybe something that we have been able to work through a little bit, p- potentially recover from a little bit. Maybe family, parents, it may have consumed our childhood. Maybe grandparents, it may have affected the way that our parents parented us. It may be that you have come from a church, believers, family members, that have had very strong opinions about divorce and have spoken to you in ways that have been hurtful, in ways that have contributed to the trauma and the difficulty of your own experience part of what the church does so badly is to create a new set of laws to hold people to them and when those people let other people down to tell them all about it what the spirit does is set us free I was talking with a friend this week She continues as an adult to work through some really severe trauma that happened in her own life as a child. She said, what's hard for me is that my pattern of control spills over into how I come to Jesus. I come to Jesus with the same control mentality that I have worked through my trauma, talked with my therapist, my friends, Developed new patterns in my life that are healthy patterns that are good, but then I come to Jesus and all of that control spills out and I find myself standing at the bottom of the cross and I don't know how to bridge the gap between myself and the cross because I have all of these ideas of control and I want to somehow do it really well. So we talked about that a little bit. And this is where Christianity gets kind of scary is that we have to be willing to be those children. And I've been thinking about this all week because this is hard for all of us as adults to say, Jesus, by your spirit, you have to show up inside of me. I have to hear your voice. This has to be real. The part in me that hurts physically because my body still carries trauma, I need you to show up there physically. The part of me that in my head is going to work this out and work this out and work this out, you have to interrupt that and give me peace. I cannot figure this out. and the place in my spirit that cannot trust you because everybody broke that down and I do not know how to trust myself, to trust that you are actually showing up, that I am actually hearing you, that this is actually your spirit and not just some weird version of too much coffee this morning. It has to be you or this is just me. Me. Alone, trying to make this work because I need something to work. So we are going to sit with the Holy Spirit for a moment this morning. And we're just going to create some space. And it's not going to be super emotional and we don't have a lot of things to make you feel a lot of things. Because that's not what we need. We just need the Spirit to speak to us in the silence, to trust that the Spirit knows each one of us, knows what you need, and it's here. If you need to sit, if you need to step out, if you'd like to kneel, Holy Spirit, we invite you right now. We know that you are here, but we invite you. We say yes. We cannot make up the difference between the space that is our body and the cross. All the things that we would lay down that we cannot lay down, would you come? Jesus, in the way that you wrapped your arms around those children, you made up the difference to them. And they knew it, they had nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer. Would you help us to receive in these moments of quiet your deep, deep love? Um, I'm just going to share as we were praying, I had a picture. I used to work at a a camp out on Catalina Island off the California coast. And uh, we would take kids uh, rock climbing, and it was a school camp. So kids would come out from school, and we would do all of the educational classes. The one that blew kids away often was... Uh, when we would get out and we would see the rock formations as they had been exposed on this island just off the California coast, you could see the way that the rocks had veins of things running through them. And the kids would try to wrap their head around the idea that that had been there all along, Um, that we would describe these millions of years. And how did that get there? How did that how did that vein, like, I see a Y because these two veins intersect, but it's right in the middle of all this other rock. How did it get there? We would talk about, oh, it, well, it was there all along. It just, in the formation, um, it's, it's been there since maybe the beginning of this particular island, but what's incredible about it is that it took some time for that to be exposed to see it. As we were praying just now, I saw something that looked like a cliff face, and it looked really bleak and shaley and dangerous. For any of you who are climbers, there's no way, there's no way, because it would all just kind of crumble, right? But as I looked, I saw a glimmer of something that was running through, um, and it was bright and beautiful, like gold running through. The rock face. I don't know if that speaks to your heart, but I'd like to encourage you that as you continue to press in, the Spirit will reveal to you the gold that is running through, that has been there all along. And continue to press into the Spirit. Trust that the work that the Spirit is doing is revealing gold. Right in the middle of what just looks like shaley rock. Looks really, really hard. It's there, it's already there.